insurance doesn't know the patient. They don't know anything about them other than what they see on paper. And so the way that we reflect them on paper, we have to be mindful of that and how there may be someone getting cut. You know, your last covered date is going to be in four days and you're like, crap. <laughs> Hi, I'm Clarice Grody and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Hey, it's Clarice from Amplify OT. Before we start today's interview and episode, I just wanted to let you know that we were having a little bit of difficulty with audio while recording this podcast. So you may hear a couple moments where audio kind of drops out or there's a little bit of gap, but overall, I think we were able to edit it to where it sounds pretty good and we've got the overall message across. I was so excited to chat with Courtney. It tied in so well with the podcast episode last week where I chatted with Alyssa about acute care and discharge planning, and then to follow it up with Courtney and inpatient rehab, so where we were sending patients from acute care to inpatient rehab, and speaking about her experiences from that perspective was just such a valuable transition. I also wanted to let you know that in two weeks, we'll be having another episode come out with Brandy Archie, all about durable medical equipment. So it was so fantastic and completely serendipitous that these podcast episodes lined up so well. So you'll hear me and Courtney talking about DME and recommending equipment, especially as it's part of discharge planning, because you will notice a common theme is discharge planning. And if you are having difficulty with discharge planning, we do have a free discharge guide as part of Amplify OT that you can download. I will link it in the show notes, or you can visit amplifyot.com forward slash discharge to download our free occupational therapy discharge guide that has tips and tricks, as well as a map of the continuum of care to help you with that hard task of discharge planning to make sure that you're making a successful discharge plan for your patients. All right, well, without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into this podcast episode with Courtney, the OT. If you don't follow her on Instagram, you should, and I'm just so grateful to have her today. All right, enjoy. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Amplify OT podcast. I am so excited to welcome Courtney from Courtney, the OT, the OT they don't teach you about on Instagram. She has one of the best accounts, I think. I always love watching your stories and seeing what's going on because you do such a good job of like connecting with people, even though they're not in front of you. And that is not always not a skill that a lot of people have. So obviously I think that would come in handy for you as an OT, but welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I feel like I am in the presence of a celebrity myself. So (laughs) we love this. We love this OT celebrities. (laughs) Social media has a lot of downsides. Don't get me wrong, but I will say one of the major upsides is definitely connecting with other clinicians. Cause like we never would have met without Instagram or like, I mean, half the OT creators and I don't guess influencers for lack of a better word, you know, I wouldn't have met any of them without social media. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for having me here. So I've worked as an OT for five years. The first four ish, four and a half years was in skilled nursing. And then actually June 13th will be one full year that I will have been. So a couple of weeks and there'll be a full year that I've been working. Congrats. Yeah. Thank you. Inpatient rehab. So 
it was quite the realization that I had actually this morning. I was like, oh my gosh, it's almost been a year. But it's been really cool not only to learn, but to see the differences in the two settings and to mm-hmm. see obviously the role of OT is the same, but just really unique to see a different perspective of what OT looks like in a different setting. So it's been really, really fun. It's funny. I'm also only five years out. So we have right, was graduated right around the same time. And I feel like always hitting that like one year mark in any new setting is always an accomplishment. Like I think, especially like when you're a new grad too, like the first three months are always the worst. <laughs> like I know when I worked in acute care, I napped like every day for like the first three months because I was so exhausted trying to learn something new. But yeah, I think once you hit that one year, you like finally kind of realize that you feel like you kind of know what you're doing. You've hit that rhythm. You're not like having to think so hard every morning. And that's always nice. I'm sorry. You said three months. For me, it was like six to nine months. <laughs> well, like, the three months were the worst. And then like six months, you hit a little bit more of a same. I mean, to be fair, my first job, I was only at it for nine months. Then I started the process over. <laughs> yeah. So starting PRN, that in itself, I feel like just prolongs the struggle of a new grad because you don't have a consistency and, you know, structure to ease into everything. So maybe that's why my new grad hot messness lasted so long. I don't know. I'm still at hot mess. I'm just not a new grad anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, technically five years, some people still define as new grad. So until you hit six, you might still be in that category. <laughs> <laughs> and I agree, definitely starting PRN, because since you're not like working every single day, it kind of draws out that process a little bit. Oh, for sure. Lots of positives to PRN too, because then you get a little bit more of a mental break. You're not just like drinking out of a fire hose every day. Exactly. So you worked in SNF first, and obviously, so today we're going to talk about inpatient rehab, which I actually did my level two in inpatient rehab. It was not for me. The early mornings <laughs> were not for me. The showers were not for me. My field work was great. My supervisor was great, but I will admit, I do not like inpatient rehab. But the fact that I'm an acute care therapist and acute care is where I love to be, I think the people who like IRF and the people who like acute are two kind of different people. Yeah. I mean, I've never worked in acute. I have zero in acute, so I can't entirely speak on that. But I definitely, from what I've heard and like learned about it, it's very different. You have far less time with these people, and um, it's just such a different setting. Oh yeah, you're talking like thirty minutes a couple times before they discharge versus an inpatient rehab. You get a lot more than that. Oh yeah. That's where I kind of learned that I wasn't the kind of therapist that likes to like really get to know my patients. Like I can live without seeing them make a ton of progress. I like just evals and discharges. See, I like live for the interpersonal like connections that I make with patients that brings my heart so much joy. And I think that's what's so beautiful about a profession is like there's such a scope, like a large scope as far as like settings that mm-hmm. fit so many personalities and and what works for you. So it's so beautiful. It breaks my heart anytime I see new grads post that they feel like the profession might not be for them or they're just, you know, so overwhelmed that they're thinking about leaving. And I totally get feeling that way. But I think we just do ourselves such a disservice by putting one too much pressure on ourselves to be successful. I see so many new grads and students who are like, I'm going to be the best OT as soon as I graduate. And you're not, you're going to be good enough to be able to get licensed and that's it. And that's fine. But you know, there are so many different opportunities and settings, which is part of what drew me to the field was how many different options there are. Because if you don't like one, then just try another, because sometimes 
you may really struggle in, you know, like I know there are some people who just are not acute care therapists. You have to be really detail oriented and go with the flow. And it's just kind of constant chaos. And if you can't operate like that, acute care is not for you, but you may really thrive in a setting like inpatient rehab or SNF where you have a little bit longer time and your schedules are not going to fall apart because everybody's, you know, in an x-ray or coding. (laughs) Yeah. We have a dialysis center in our hospital. Mm. And so whenever I have a patient in my case with on dialysis, there's a risk of dialysis needing to take somebody and it just puts the day to shambles. To put it nicely, yeah. Yeah. Dialysis is like the bane of every therapy practitioner's existence because it can really just destroy a day. Oh, because they're gone for four hours, four hours of them being there and then they come back just pooped. Yeah, they just wiped out afterwards. I had that trouble in home health too, trying to schedule visits and folks who are on dialysis and it was always a nightmare. And then same thing in the hospital, like if they were on dialysis, then you just, they're, you're just going to see them tomorrow. It wasn't going <laughs> to, yeah. it wasn't going to yeah. happen that day. Yeah. But I'd love for you to tell me and tell us like what for you has been the biggest difference you think between SNF and inpatient rehab? Honestly, one of the big things for me was the type of patient that I was getting, but also the caseload. So the type of patient, obviously, you have to really qualify for inpatient rehab. You have to have somewhat of a discharge plan, even if I feel like some people fib on their discharge plan just to get in. <laughs> that drives me crazy. But then they also have to be able to take three hours of therapy five days a week. So my caseload, I only oversee, I say only, it feels like a lot, but I oversee eight patients. Whereas when I was in skilled nursing, I oversaw like 20 to 25, depending on yeah. staffing. And so it was very difficult to manage patients, you know, efficiently and effectively and work on discharge planning and all that stuff for that many patients. It was very overwhelming and stressful. See how that kind of stuff burns people out because you're just firing at all cylinders, trying to put out fires and and oversee this and plan this and order this and all that kind of stuff. Whereas it feels overwhelming at times, but it's eight people and I can manage eight better than 25. I was listening to a podcast the other day where they were talking about burnout and what's exhausting to people. And it's not necessarily the size of your caseload. It's what you're talking about, like that administrative piece, right? Where you're kind of overseeing their plan of care and making referrals and so it's not just the patient itself and the caseload, but how much extra you're having to think about on top of that, their progress notes, all that kind of stuff. And so the bigger your caseload is, then inevitably then too, some more of the administrative burden that falls on your lap. For sure. And I mean, I had a team, like a, a speech therapist and a physical therapist That's when I was in skilled nursing. It wasn't quite as structured, like room assignments and room blocks were not very structured in skilled nursing. Where I'm at now, things are very like team block oriented. So I have two PT partners because they work 12 hours. So they work opposite days and then one speech therapy partner. And the way that we split setting up caregiver training, ordering DME, communicating with all the stuff, giving handouts for this, making HEPs, we kind of split the load and communicate nice. very well. So it, again, helps managing all of the intricacies Yeah. And I wanted to go back to what you said around, you know, that someone really has to kind of qualify into inpatient rehab, because I think that's something that a lot of folks don't realize. And we kind of talked about, I actually just talked with, you know, Alyssa from Genuine, Genuinely OT, and she works in acute. And we were talking about how difficult it can be sometimes to get people 
into inpatient rehab. And it's a little bit of kind of a game of trying to make them sound functional enough that they can tolerate the three hours of therapy, right? Because that's one of the admission criteria that's laid out by Medicare is that they have to, you know, in order to get reimbursed under inpatient rehab, the patient needs three hours of therapy by two disciplines, five days a week minimum. And so if they can't tolerate three hours of therapy, the ERF isn't going to want to take them because then they won't get reimbursed. But then you also can't have them be so functional that they don't need three hours of skilled therapy a day. And so it kind of just gets, it's kind of this funky game from like the acute care side of like, okay, how do we how do we document that they're really motivated, really engaged, and can really benefit from inpatient rehab, but also make sure to a certain extent that they're not progressing so quickly that insurance will deny them going to ERF or that the ERF won't accept them, one or the other. Yeah. And we see that like from some of the neighboring hospitals, like when we read their notes, it's definitely, it's interesting. It's a, something I didn't really think about because when you work in SNF, like this is people's last spots. It's, you know, you don't necessarily have to qualify for SNF too much extent. And so there's so many more rules of sorts when qualifying for ERF. And it makes sense because inpatient rehab is a lot more expensive. And I mean, it does have, you know, because you have 24-hour nursing in inpatient rehab. And you do have that in, in SNF as well. But then you also have physicians in inpatient rehab. Sometimes they're in the hospital. And then you also have that 60% rule. So you have to have 60% of patients who need a specific qualifying diagnosis in order to go into ERF as well. And so I remember, you know, if you had a patient that was denied because they didn't have a qualifying diagnosis to go to inpatient rehab, it's because that 60% rule. But the diagnoses are ones that make sense and probably ones that you see. A lot of neuro, amputations, some of your like the people who you think would need three hours of therapy a day versus like, a lot of your patients with dementia and some of your kind of just like failure to thrive folks, they're going to go to SNF. They're generally not going to go to inpatient rehab. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I feel like the outside of 60% slips through and makes it into inpatient rehab. <laughs> and and we work with it, but uh, definitely see a little bit of everything. But for sure, definitely you're on the neuro and the amputation, the transplants. And we have a really big research hospital near where I work. And so we get a lot of really interesting, unique cases from them, which is yeah. cool. But how often, or I guess, how long do you spend with your patients each day, kind of on average? The first day or the day of eval, obviously, every patient gets an evaluation from occupational therapy, physical therapy, and speech therapy. And so it's always after speech therapy evaluates the patient. The speech therapist will let us know, hey, I'm not picking them up at all. They don't need speech. Or, hey, I'm going to pick them up for 30 minutes or I'm going to pick them up for 60. So we then adjust our plan of care based on going to pick them up or not. And so if speech come up for 60 minutes and it's, you know, 60, 60, 60, if it's 30, then it's 30, 75, and 70. So, you know, the time in which I spend with the patient does kind of vary depending on if they get speech or not. My patients that, don't get speech and get 90, 90 of each discipline. Like I mentioned, I oversee eight patients and I provide six hours of patient care in a treatment day. So in six hours of patient care, we have schedulers and I prefer 60 minute sessions. I don't like 30 minute sessions because I feel like I can't accomplish anything. So I request 60 minute sessions for all my patients. And I understand that that means going to be two patients in a day that I'm not going to be able to 
And we that's what our codas help with. They help with kind of the offload. I understand that. And I anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. If I request a longer session, then I you know, have to request that and I can, but it's typically 60 minutes. Yeah, I think that that lines up with kind of my experience. And I think it's very common that then speech kind of says what they're going to do because they tend to see the patient usually for the least amount of frequency or they don't pick up as many patients. And then OT and PT generally just kind of split the minutes like that. Because I think even I'm trying to think back to my experience, it was maybe every now and then you'd have a patient who would spend two hours with PT and one hour with OT, but that was not very common. It was usually kind of 50-50. Yeah, they're definitely one-offs. We actually just had like a brief mini meeting with our manager about this exact topic where, you know, for the staffing models, you know, it's tough. If you ask for two hours of one discipline and one of the other, that kind of messes with, you know, the availability that you have of that discipline. Now, there can be a variety of ways that someone's time gets split, but, you know, so long as they're getting, like you said, those two disciplines hours a day, three hours, five days a week. Now, I feel like one thing that folks complain about a lot, and I complained about this, at least this is how my inpatient rehab facility was, is that there's not always a lot of time to go to the bathroom because you have to meet those minutes that they schedule you so close back to back. Does your facility better about that? Or is it kind of the same complaint where you go in the morning and then you got to wait till lunch? (laughs) I will say that I am blessed. There is a bathroom right in the middle of the unit where it's like right next to my block of rooms. So if I, you know, take a quick potty break. I don't feel like it's the end of the world. I have to meet my own needs, you know? (laughs) So, (laughs) um, or if like a patient is, you know, say we just kind of went through like ADLs or whatever, and they're like brushing their teeth at the sink and I can safely, or maybe Mm -hmm. the CNA is like doing something. Where do I like leave a patient during a session to go to the bathroom? Right. Or I just wait until I have, um, I actually have a huddle every day at 11 o'clock. So I have a 15 minute little break in the middle of my day where I can, you know, the bathroom. I don't know. I guess if I have to go, we'll go. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Take care of you first. You know, the business can wait. Yeah. Good for you. See, that's what we got as practitioners. We got to stand up for ourselves and we got to stand up for our bathroom breaks. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have even been times where like, say they're just wrapping up breakfast and be like, all right, up breakfast i'll be back in less than two minutes take those last couple bites and i'll be right back (laughs) are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level then look no further than the amplify ot membership you heard that right amplify ot has its very own membership program this membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in medicare and advocacy You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today 
by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. Yeah. And, you know, SNFs are pretty heavily regulated, especially because they're nursing homes. And there's also just a lot more abuse in skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes than there are in inpatient rehab, I think, especially because the staffing ratios are so different. The staffing ratios tend to be pretty decent in inpatient rehab because the reimbursement is there to support those staffing ratios versus I feel like a lot of times I did four hours of care in a sniff and I never went back. <laughs> I did PRN and I remember I did not find a nurse for like the first three hours of my shift. Yeah, that that happens. I will say the skilled nurse, the one I worked at was ethical at least. Well, that's good. Yeah. And it's, you know, as always, there's, there's bad apples and there's good apples. It's about finding, finding the ones that work for you and that you can feel good about your work and for sure, you know, how can we help lead the change? Right. And I, and I wanted to, you know, touch on, you're talking about the discharge plan. And I think you and I talked about this a little bit beforehand of kind of playing off of some of my policy knowledge and some of your lived experiences of why, they need to have a firm discharge plan. And we can talk about that. But I wanted you to kind of explain kind of from the inpatient rehab perspective and your perspective as to what kind of that discharge plan looks like, because that is kind of a unique feature of inpatient rehab because of the continuum of care that SNF does come after inpatient rehab versus in SNF, you're not going to go from SNF to ERF. There's a, a reason why ERFs want a more firm discharge plan when they come in. But I'd like you to kind of talk about that as to what that looks like from your perspective. Yeah, so with discharge plans, of course, we're supposed to have one when they come to us. There are definitely situations where things change. They thought they had a plan and for whatever reason, it's no longer an option. But what I find is that, you know, we have goals as a facility on the number of patients, you know, return to community means if they were in assisted living before, doesn't count against us because it's a home environment. Um, it's not a facility. So whether it's independent living, assisted living, home with family, home alone, whatever that is, a non-return to community would be to skilled nursing or an LTAC or return to acute. So obviously, as therapists, we can't entirely control return to acute, but we also can't control if someone has 40 steps to enter their home and they're non-weight-bearing on bilateral lower extremities or they haven't walked in so long or whatever. I swear they think we have magic wands sometimes. And I am very grateful that there is something like skilled nursing as a resource for the patients who truly need it. And I will say, I think if you're working in an inpatient rehab facility setting, the goal is always to try your absolute best to get them back home in a safe manner. And knowing that skilled nursing is that fallback plan, doctors will appreciate that mind because they you know, people breathing down their backs when there's a uptick in people going to nursing or, or anything yeah. like that. Part of the other thing that's probably a challenge, and I know this is in field nursing and inpatient rehab, is basically an inpatient rehab is called the CMG, the case mix group. And so they take a di- someone's diagnosis, a coded diagnosis, any type of complexities or comorbidities, and then they kind of put it through their little algorithm. <laughs> that's, and- how it's, that's how it sounds. That's what the Absolutely. You should, you should hear their office building. It's like that all day long. <laughs> and actually say, okay, well, based on this algorithm, you we will cover you 10 days. And this is for Medicare patients. This is 
is not private insurance or commercial insurance. But it's really frustrating when sometimes insurance just doesn't cover people long enough to get them to a point to where they can go home. And so navigating that can be a challenge as well. Yeah. And I think that's especially true because yeah, inpatient rehab has its own kind of case mix group. And that's a little bit more similar to kind of a DRG and acute care, but you still have like the section GG component. That's their functional score, right? Which would place the FIM and what, like 20. Oh gosh, I'm going to get it wrong. It's like 2018 or something around there. It doesn't really matter, but because it's section GG now, no more FIM and inpatient rehab. If you've haven't worked in inpatient rehab in a while, that may be news to you. But in SNF, they have PDPM, which is even more, you know, it's a more complicated case mix group. And a lot of facilities make decisions based on what they think Medicare might allow, or, you know, the home health agencies do that too, where even though Medicare doesn't limit visits, they don't, you know, Medicare is generally not the one who's telling you when it's time to discharge the facility may kind of make a decision based off of what they think the reimbursement's going to be or what they think, you know, it's all based off of some kind of random, well, it's not necessarily random, but based off of kind of historical claims data. And then you've got your Medicare Advantage plans and they really like to, they really like to kick people out. Yeah. Well, and I will say patient rehabilitation care tool, not mm-hmm. uh, so there's, yeah, but they're, I don't want to say synonymous, but they're like fraternal twins, I think is a good way to put it. They're the same, same questions. There's like a couple of slightly different wording, but they've been continuing to standardize them. So home health, SNF, and inpatient rehab all use Section GG, and they may still call it the care tool through the IRFPI, and then LTAC has like a shortened version of it. Because it, it was the care tool when it first came out, it was the care tool, and then they kind of renamed it, and they may still call it sometimes an IRF, it's still call it the care, because they still call it the care like an LTAC but it's the same questions, which is easier for CMS because that's part of why they changed it is because the FIM was different from the rug levels. And so you couldn't compare patient progress as they moved through. That makes sense. Yeah. Little history lesson for the impact act. (laughs) Yeah. There you have it. And like you said, with that quality measure, and that's something that, especially in post-acute care, you know, therapy really can have a big impact on quality outcomes Inpatient rehab is unique because it still has that fee-for-service element in its reimbursement structure where it requires like three hours of therapy a day. So it's still like, it's still, it's kind of like a partial value system, but it's still also partial volume because they're requiring a certain volume of therapy versus the other settings are much more of that value-based payment where it's a little bit more, they're not technically bundled payments, but they kind of operate like them. So it kind of effectively is somewhat like a bundled payment. And so you don't have required minutes. Like in SNF, you know, you used to have the rug levels, they're gone. And so there's no like Medicare set requirement that a patient receive X amount of therapy per day um, Mm -hmm. like you have than an inpatient rehab, which I think really kind of opens up opportunities for different types of interventions because you have that time. Oh, for sure. I think a lot of our, some of the more popular accounts that even we see on Instagram where they show these really unique interventions, many times the only reason they're able to do those is because of how the reimbursement structure is set up because you guys have an hour to an hour and a half with a patient versus like in acute care, there's no way I'm getting somebody into like a standing machine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the prep work for half of these things is what takes the bulk of the time, whether, you know, getting someone set up on the Excite, which is like a 
basically an Easton tower that has functional programs programmed in. And the setup of that, it, you know, it doesn't do just individual muscle contraction, literally like a functional reach or teeth brushing or self-feeding. So you're putting these, sticking all the, the little lead Easton pads on all over the shoulder and the arm and, and that kind of stuff. And then, so you set it up, but then as we know with research for neuro recovery, you have to do practice and you have to do these high reps. And so that in itself takes a long time. So yeah, it's, I'm very grateful to have those long to be able to accomplish those types of things because it does allow me to really utilize some really unique skills and get creative and have fun with it. And, and I think that's the benefit. And so if you're someone who really likes kind of thinking outside the box and doing some of those really higher up things, especially, you know, neuro, I think is such a perfect diagnosis for inpatient rehab because you do need those high reps. And that's something even I've kind of wondered about and would like to look in further as I decide what I want to do in the future. But something I'd really like to look into is how, you know, whether or not because of our reimbursement structures, it's kind of taken out some of the value that therapy brings. Because if you look at the research, like you said, it really requires a lot of these high reps, a lot of like kind of prolonged intervention and checking back in. But because of how our reimbursement structures are set up and SNF or home health or even outpatient, it's near impossible to kind of provide the care that's actually really evidence-based for some of these diagnoses. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Inpatient rehab is just such a, a unique setting. And I think it's a, a fantastic one for some of those higher level diagnoses, or I guess lower level, the the more functionally impaired folks. And I had that at inpatient rehab too, where we had like meetings almost every day or uh, case management meetings. And it really is a very team-based approach to figuring out how can we get someone home and what's needed to get them home? Because they're so complex. A lot of times they require different equipment. And so is that something that you participate in, especially as you know an OT and recommending equipment or helping order different DME for their house? Or how does that look? Absolutely. So the way that where I work works is by day seven, no matter how long someone's anticipated to stay by day seven, we should have DME orders in and at least attempted to set up caregiver training. So one week in, we have to have addressed DME and caregiver training, unless of course they don't live with anyone. DME, we either go into our little thing in Meditech and put, no, they don't need DME, even if we think they might end up going to skilled nursing, because if someone's going sniff, you don't order DME because they're going to another facility and the other facility will order that mm. for them. But we still put it in so the order's there in yeah. the events that they don't go sniff and they get to go home or whatever. So that's one way, like, again, discharging from day one. Is that not what we get taught all the time? Is like you discharge plan from day one. And so we pretty much created a rule because um, we've done a lot of like trial and error of learning of how do we maintain that metric of return to community. And one of our initiatives was day seven, you have to have DME in and you have to have initiated caregiver training to some extent. Yeah. To address things early on to kind of set expectations. But yes, I do order DME. Typically, you know, I'm collaborating again with my PT counterpart, trying to discuss, you know, understanding that if they're Medicare and most private insurances follow a lot of Medicare guidelines when it comes to DME. Yeah. So one walker or wheelchair once every five years, a bedside commode once every five years, they can, you know, if we're going to recommend they have a wheelchair. Okay, we're given a handout on where to buy a walker. 
Um, you know, we want insurance to cover the more expensive of the two or whatever. But interestingly right. enough, hear me out on this. This happened to me yesterday. I had an order for a bedside commode denied because the patient is walking 60 feet. I said, what? Yeah. I, just because someone's walking 60 feet doesn't mean they can get up off their toilet. And what about nighttime toileting routines? So I, it, it had made me sit back and reflect. I was like, did I, you know, use a justification strong enough? Maybe I need to be better at my wording. And thankfully the patient, I mean, and this patient is not entirely a polytrauma, but has a lot going on mm-hmm. to where one of their struggles is getting up from the toilet. So I basically had to like teach other compensatory ways of like how to safely get on and off their toilet and modify it. But Sometimes they come back around and don't cover it. Yeah. And especially with bedside commodes, oftentimes they won't cover a bedside commode or it's part of their requirements that they can't have a bathroom like on the same floor as to where they're staying. And so if it's not documented, then that may be why they approve it sometimes. But like if they're going to have to stay on a floor that doesn't have a bathroom, they might approve the bedside commode. But if they have a bathroom on that same floor, they often will not approve the bedside commode. And that 50 feet thing, I know that's definitely true for wheelchairs, that if you can walk more than 50 feet, they will not approve a wheelchair. Which is insane. That is insane to me. Right? Yeah, because it's one of those things where, you know, how Medicare, and it's funny because I just talked to someone else about DME. So there's another episode on DME coming out, but talking about how we have to be careful how we justify or sometimes too, and that's the hard part is with documentation, do we purposely sometimes hold people back because we know it's going to be better for them to try and get approval for some of these resources? You know, and that's kind of something that we've talked about even in acute care. Like there's nothing in the guidance that says that if a patient walks longer than 150 feet, they can't go to inpatient rehab. But a lot of inpatient rehab facilities will not take someone if they can walk 150 feet. So there are a lot of patients in acute care where we'd walk them only 100 feet and then head back to their room even though they could walk further, but we know that they need inpatient rehab for all these other resources, but we wouldn't walk them far enough to get them refused from Earth. So it's kind of an interesting an interesting game that we play as therapists to try and figure out how can we get people access to the resources they need with also not, obviously, never want to endorse doing anything fraudulently, but it's an interesting system we work in. For sure. I mean, even in inpatient rehab, the, the folks that are not on Medicare and they're on their private insurance, so those are the people that aren't necessarily insurance isn't putting them through their little, you know, algorithm and spitting out a specific date. Sometimes it's a week by week, they get weekly authorization. And so there's definitely times where I'm like, oh, I really shouldn't progress them to supervision quite yet because we're trying to get off for another week. Exactly. Like they have other things that still really benefit from you know, I can't, I'm not going to put a mod eye quite yet. Like I need to see, like, you know, you have to, you have to kind of dance that line. You know, you don't want to make them because sometimes we get excited because we see them progress. And then Mm -hmm. how they look on paper doesn't necessarily reflect how they are in person. And insurance doesn't know the patient, they don't know anything about them other than what they see on paper. And so the way that we reflect them on paper, we have to be mindful of that. And how there may be someone getting cut, you know, your last covered day is going to be in four days. And you're like, crap. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, that was even hard lessons that I had to learn in acute care. But yeah, it's, it's so important to document your skill to document what's going on with the patient. And I think as therapists, as practitioners, you know, we so much want to give people the benefit of the doubt, 
or, oh, well, you know, I gave them like a little, you know, I gave them a little bit of a touch to balance them, but I bet they could have done it without me. We like to always see the glasses half full, which is, you know, fine. I'm not not saying anyone needs to be sad all the time, but sometimes when we give people too much benefit of the doubt or we paint too rosy of a picture, we actually end up hurting our patients instead of helping them, instead of being really more objective in what we're documenting and thinking about that insurance piece, because that's another part of it too, right? If we don't think about these pieces, we're really hurting our patients because it's a reality that they're living with that if we're really going to truly be holistic, that financial component, that insurance component is part of a holistic look at a patient's care. Absolutely. And it's funny you bring that up. That is something that I've seen over the years with students and new grads and how we score people on evaluation. And that that I could talk a whole podcast episode just about (laughs) this in itself, because it was a learning thing for me myself when scoring on eval It is just in our heart of hearts. We want to give people the benefit of the doubt so much. Oh, they brush their teeth in bed at setup assist. No. Do they brush their teeth in bed at home? Right. If baseline is standing at the sink and they can't stand without two people holding them up. No, they are not setup assist for oral hygiene because you're not capturing that true burden of care. And so capturing the true burden of care is something to keep in mind when you are documenting, because that is where insurance is looking for that burden of care and they're looking for the safety. And oh, I love when I'm doing my little weekly plan of care updates. I love throwing in like their rehospitalization and fall risk. Yeah. Oh, we love those little buzzwords. I always feel so like, yeah. And why do we throw those in there? Because it's expensive. Yes, it is so expensive. And insurances want to avoid spending more money, right? And that's part of understanding that influence, whether that's a quality measure, because there are also quality metrics around falls and hospital readmissions, but also falls and hospital readmissions are extremely costly. So insurance would rather pay for an additional week of inpatient rehab, which isn't cheap, than pay for another hospitalization. And so if we can justify that in our notes, you have a much more compelling argument then, well, the patient was mod assist today and they really need to be at standby assist. They're going to be like, well, it's not me who has to wipe myself. But if you can say, well, you're the one who's going to have to pay for the fall when they can't get up from the toilet, that's a little bit more of a compelling argument to that private insurance company. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT Amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% off with the code Amplify OT, that's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support Amplify OT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development 
and head over to MedBridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to MedBridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. Absolutely. I had a patient who has a specific type of private insurance that I guess this is a patient who lives alone. And unfortunately, if they could get like three more weeks with us, I feel like we could maybe get them to a point where they could be alone. But due to not the best family support or availability, honestly, I think skilled nursing is the best for this patient. Well, this insurance is infamously known for not authorizing for skilled nursing. Yeah. Unfortunately, this patient has no other options. So it's like, you know, when I was justifying the need for my recommendation to skilled nursing, it was this patient is not safe to be home alone. This patient is a high fall risk. This patient has a very high risk of rehospitalization. This patient would benefit from the continued skilled interventions from an occupational therapist and another care facility, like having to throw those words because it's like, I don't know how else to like tell you guys without grabbing your shoulders and shaking you that like, it blows my mind that this is someone who truly would benefit from this level of care and like the hoops that they make you go through. But then there's some people where it's like, they don't ask questions. They just authorize anyone to go to these facilities. Like the differences in insurances makes me lose my mind a little bit. It's very frustrating. And I, I agree. Like even from the acute care side, we knew which Medicare Advantage plans would never approve someone to go to inpatient rehab. And so we would always make sure with those patients to kind of make sure that we were very early on prepping them for the fact that they were most likely going to go to SNF, that we would ask their insurance, but most likely they would not go. And here's where things get really frustrating is this is where we start talking about the difference between covered and approved. And this is especially true, right? In your private insurances, which are Medicare Advantage plans are run by private insurance companies, is that What's so frustrating and heartbreaking is that patients will call their health insurance provider and say, well, is this covered? And they'll say yes, because SNF and inpatient rehab are technically covered. They're listed as covered benefits. But there's a difference between that and when they approve to pay for it, right? That's the kind of whole thing with the DME. Like, is the commode covered? It's covered. It's covered benefit, but they're not going to pay for it. And that's what's so hard, I think, for a lot of patients to understand And that's where I think there builds a lot of mistrust in the healthcare system, which is really unfortunate because then they think that we didn't do our jobs to try and justify it for them. But that's what's so frustrating with a lot of these plans is when it's a covered benefit, but you know that that patient is never going to get access to that benefit because they deny it all the time. Yeah, it's it's very frustrating. And I will say this, all the things that we're kind of talking about, I did not know as a new grad. I just want to preface that, like, I didn't know this stuff. I learned it A, through practice, but B, I will go to my case manager and say, can mm-hmm. you explain this to me? Because patients will ask you this. They'll ask these types of questions about things. And I say, yeah. here's the deal. I have very limited knowledge on the intricacies, especially as it relates to your specific payer source. Let me send the case manager in to follow up. But then I'll circle back and be like, okay, help me understand this. Because that is how we learn these things all of this knowledge, I'm not going to lie and say I did some CEU on this stuff. Like, no, I didn't. I (laughs) learned from the people that are around me in my workplace. So this is my little TED talk on like, utilize your coworkers to learn about the other disciplines that impact your daily workflow and your patients and all that. 
Yeah. And I, I learned a lot from my case managers and like that very issue, like what you're talking about, I didn't know this stuff as a new grad either. I mean, I worked in home health as a new grad. And frankly, I did some things that were most likely illegal because my company told me they were okay. And I didn't know. And that's part of why I started my company in the first place, started Amplify OT, was to get practitioners access to this kind of information that's easier to understand than trying to read the Medicare document by yourself. That's why I created my course, you know, so if new grad Courtney, you know, could have taken a course that was specific to occupational therapy and reimbursement. That's why I talk about, you know, in my mastering OT policy course, all through all the different settings, because they all interact. Because even if you're in inpatient rehab, you still kind of have to know what SNF and home health cover, because you're referring people to those services. Absolutely. So it's not always enough just to know, like, if you're in home health, your position's a little bit easier, because you're kind of at the end of the food chain. You know, usually you're just discharging patients or maybe they're going to outpatient, but especially when you're higher up in that continuum of care, like acute inpatient rehab and SNF, you really have to know what comes after you and understand kind of hospice and who qualifies for that because we're referring patients to those services. And if we don't know who's qualified for those services, then we're not really making successful plans. And then that makes the case manager's life hard. And then they don't like OT because we're making their life difficult. Yes. I mean, helping to understand the other settings to help set expectations is very important. You know, when I'm recommending that these patients have home health, I always tell them like, just so you know, it's maybe only going to be two to three sessions a week right? for an hour at a time. And that's like, if you're lucky and that's, you know, as far as how many sessions that is up to the discretion of the payer source and whatever the recommendation is of that therapist. So, you know, people are like, Oh, I'm just going to go home with home health. I'm like, that's not every day. And that is not to cook for you. That is not to clean for you. That is therapy and to check your vitals. It is for nothing else, you know? And that is such a huge, if patients always think, Oh, well, home health, or like they had a surgery 15 years ago and they had home health then. And that is not the home health of today. No, no. The age of daily aid visits is long been gone. And so if we think about that too, where, you know, when you're talking about patients ask these questions, I mean, that's again, part of what spurred me to learn about a lot of this stuff is that I got asked all the time, does my insurance cover this? Or what does my insurance cover? And I never liked just being like, I don't really know. And especially like in some other settings, I didn't have access to a case manager, like in home health versus I had a lot of access in acute care. But I wanted to learn so that I could help my patients navigate it because if it's confusing to us, the people who live and work in healthcare every single day, I mean, we can only imagine how horribly confusing it is for our patients. And I know because I've watched my family try and navigate the healthcare system. And I'm like, okay, here's the questions that you need to ask. Here's what you need to look for. This is how you look at the quality ratings of these different settings and pick which one's going to work for you. And that's for like, if I didn't have that kind of knowledge you know, my family would have had such a hard time navigating, discharging from a hospital. And so our patients really are relying on us to kind of be that navigator for them. Oh, yeah. You may not have all the answers, but knowing how to guide them to your knowledge. And, you know, the more you can provide, obviously, the better. But at least knowing the basics of how to steer them and help set expectations. And when conversations reach a point where you can't confidently answer anymore, it's okay to say, you know, I don't know the answer, but let me go ask or let me go find someone who can answer for you. Right. Yeah. We never want to make promises, especially around insurance and coverage. That is one of my 
Pro tips, never promise someone that they will receive something when they discharge or, oh, I guarantee you'll get OT when home health comes out because you do not know that. Or I guarantee, you know, oh yeah, Medicare always pays for this because that is not a promise that you want to make. And you don't want to build that mistrust with patients in the healthcare system because there is a lot of trust. We are in a really strong position of power that we don't always really recognize that power dynamic that we have with patients. And so we have to be really mindful of that. A lot of patients will believe whatever it is that we say because uh, we're medical providers. And so we have to really make sure that what we're telling them is accurate. I always have to kind of check myself with that, to be completely honest. Like sometimes I forget the power that my role has. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. wait, I actually kind of am a big deal. Like (laughs) I'm a bigger (laughs) deal than I tell myself sometimes. You know, like I think, I don't know, we just kind of get lost in the flow. And then it's like, oh, wait, yeah, no. Like people, I just had a, family member the other day sit down kind of out of nowhere was sitting there with a pen and paper and she's like okay so what OT recommendations do you have for me and I was like oh my gosh she has a pen and paper she's ready like she wants notes like <laughs> oh my goodness details trust and believe in your discharge packet you'll have my instructions you don't have to write anything down it gets printed out for you but appreciate the enthusiasm <laughs> and how much they look to us for guidance I mean even my family when my grandmother was in the hospital, they're like, well, no one will tell us what her true status is. And I'm like, it's because they don't know. And they don't want to promise you that they're going to get better because they don't know that she is. And so they're just going to tell you that today was a good day because they can't make a prediction because what if it's wrong? And two, you Mm -hmm. know, I think about that of like making recommendations. That was another kind of hard lesson I learned as a new grad is that because I recommended equipment, families would buy it whether they really could afford it or not because a healthcare worker recommended it to them. And they kind of expected that I would consider that I surely I wouldn't recommend it if it wasn't worthwhile. And maybe it was a good recommendation. Like maybe they needed the reacher or they needed, you know, whatever it was that I said they needed. But do they really need it? Do they need it versus buying dinner tomorrow? You know, and if I don't consider that financial component, then I'm really not being a good therapist. So one of the things when I do give kind of education, maybe like a handout on certain pieces of equipment. If it's something like what I always tell people or what I have found, at least with my laptop at work, is that Amazon is the most printer friendly website. Hmm. I've tried to pull things up on Walmart, Target or whatever random website, and it just isn't printer friendly. Like things get jumbled. So I always tell people this handout is for Amazon. However, where you choose to buy it, I was like, I circled or I highlighted the name of the equipment. And this is the general features that I'm recommending. Whether you go to a thrift store, a Facebook marketplace, a family friend or whatever, I don't care where you buy it from, so long as it is in good condition and it has these features that, you know, do X, Y, and Z, that is what I care about. So, but I was like, set that preface of like, you don't have to make an Amazon account and purchase something. You know, maybe you have a grandkid that's very Amazon savvy. I find that a lot of times I'm like, well, is your Mm -hmm. kid or your grandkid, like, can they help you? But Yeah. And like, for example, like with hip kits, I always tell them there's about 40 different hip kits on Amazon and ranging from $25, $20 to like $50, $60, depending Mm -hmm. on how fancy you want it. The bare minimum works just fine. If you want to go above and beyond, pop off, sis, like go for it. Like more power to you. And sometimes just asking like one of the questions that I learned to ask is like, there's ways to ask about insurance or about money in a way that's not condescending because it is a touchy topic because you never want to be like, can you afford this? Because it sounds judgmental. And I always found the best way to kind of address some of those is to ask people, 
are we in a situation where you want sky's the limit recommendations, like everything, and then you'll figure it out? Or do you want really only the stuff that is absolutely essential, cannot live it out? Like what is our financial situation? And that kind of opened up a conversation at least. So that way I'm not giving them a list of all the like would be nice devices that then they feel pressure that they need to buy for. Instead, I'm better able to tailor my list of like, okay, if I had to pick two pieces of equipment that are really going to make or break, you know, make a difference in your life, these are what I recommend versus some folks want everything. You know, they've got no budget. They want all the gadgets and the gizmos and I'll give them a list, you know, and that's a good way to kind of approach that that's still can taking into consideration their financial well-being because we don't want to cause them financial harm just like we don't want to cause them physical harm. For sure. Absolutely. I agree. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be bad if I didn't agree. Yeah, you don't want to do that argument on, on the podcast, right? It'll just let me know. In private. So we did get a couple of questions on social media for you. So I want to make sure we answer them really quickly and rapid fire before we okay. close off. So first question, recommendations for students starting a level two field work who have never observed an inpatient rehab. I would say be ready to absorb all the things, ask the questions, take notes. Don't take mental notes if they're not going to stick. Take the physical notes. An abbreviation is new to you. Write it down. Literally bring a note. I tell students, bring a notebook, write things down. Whatever you need to do to help you be successful should work for your CI. Communication with your CI and that exact topic, uh, you know, how do you learn? How do you get feedback? How do you retain things? We learned about feedback styles and all that stuff in grad school, right? (laughs) So like it comes full circle, but also just kind of accepting the fact that it's a very fast paced setting and you have to be very detail oriented. And so finding whatever your workflow looks like, I'm very checklist oriented and in any of my workflow items, my checklists, my spreadsheets, I share with my students, but finding the system that works for you to help keep you on top of everything. Yeah. And give yourself a break. It's okay not to know everything. Oh, for sure. Fieldwork, I think, is one of the most stressful experiences because you don't really don't really have a handle on things like you do at least by the time you graduate. But also you know that the person who is supervising you has a huge impact on your ability to do what you want to do. You already spent all this money and now you're just hoping that the other other person is going to be supportive. And that's a it's a tough situation. Again, another time where especially us as who are supervising students can need to check our power as well and mm-hmm. check the ego and make sure that we're doing our due diligence with our with our students. It's yeah, a hard, sure. hard spot. All right. Second question and last question. Tips for managing a busy caseload and productivity in inpatient rehab. So for managing a caseload, I literally made a spreadsheet. Like I have like a Word document that has eight rows and I have different columns. I have columns for, so it's like their name, the room number and the attending physician. And then I've got a a row or a column for the general diagnosis. That's, I could get rid of that one. But then I have what DME they own, what DME they'll need, column for if the DME order is in, a column for if caregiver training has been set up, scheduled or done. And then a little bit about their, oh, their discharge date. And then a little bit about the home setup, you know, lives alone in a single story home with two steps to enter, walk in shower with grab bars, like the general, whatever. These are all pieces of information I'm getting on my eval that I'm literally just copying and pasting into this little spreadsheet. And I'm 
very visual. So I have this color coded. <laughs> it's slightly obnoxious. It's what I had to make that work for me, but that's how I manage things. I can visually see who's got what in and what's missing. What do I need to follow up on today? Do you have that for sale somewhere? Because I feel like you should. I feel like that's something that people would buy from you, Courtney. Thank you for that idea. I don't know. I yeah. that might be. I think that would be helpful because that was, I mean, other therapists I know that I work with have kind of a somewhat version. These are like, you know, in these 12 hour therapists, they have to give a handoff to each other each day. So their handoffs are like, very, but that's what inspired me was like this handoff concept. It's just a handoff to myself every single day. So, and then, you know, I have checklists for my evals and my discharges. That is like, you know, the things yeah. that I have to get done, but Productivity, you know, I am blessed in that I worked a little over four years in skilled nursing to where I've conquered pretty good point of service (laughs) documentation. I mean, I feel like I'm probably one of the few therapists that do point of service documentation. And it's mostly just because that's in my blood. And there are ways to do it legally and ethically in case anyone's wondering. There are plenty of ways to do point of service documentation because I am also a supporter a point of service documentation as long as it's legal and ethical and there are plenty of ways to do it and frankly i found it very beneficial in a lot of settings to make sure i'm capturing accurately what's happening but also really forces you to go over the plan of care with the patient which is really important for sure yeah and there's definitely sessions where i don't touch my computer mm-hmm. for you know sessions at a time and that's okay i don't mind documenting during lunch you know spending time everyone's opinions on that is different <laughs> But if I'm, you know, typing a couple things in between bites, that doesn't bother me personally. And I typically don't have too much to do over lunch. Yeah. So I don't know. And then it's once you get used to your EMR system, obviously things go a lot quicker. You know how to abbreviate things. You know how to be more concise with your verbiage. That makes a big difference. I think yeah. in grad school, we, we learn how to be wordy in grad school. And then all of a sudden, you know, the text box that you get only allows so many characters and you're like, crap, how do I say this real quickly? Yep. I feel like that's always a big thing when I have new fieldwork students is breaking them of the habit of writing in full sentence paragraphs. Like, nope, it can just be patient, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't have to be the patient greeted me with a warm affect, you know, like, no, (laughs) just straight to the point, cut out almost 90% of those words. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's always a challenge. But yeah, well, I think those are fantastic tips. And I think, you know, it's funny because you said before we talked when we were talking about doing a podcast that you're like, well, I don't know if I can talk too much about the policy side. But, you know, we talked about it, like, a lot of the things that you talk about are all informed by policy and insurance and reimbursement. And once we kind of realize that that's where that stuff is coming from, it makes it a lot easier to know one where to look for information, but then two, also, how to know to check it as well to make sure that you're getting told the right information. And it just helps the system make more sense because it is a system with rules and laws and all sorts of stuff. And knowing how it works makes things a lot, a lot less friction, frictionous, a lot less difficult. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Courtney, for your time. I'm so glad that we finally got to connect and chat and um, talk all about inpatient rehab. And I look forward to seeing you all over Instagram. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. And yeah, you know where to find me. I'm always there in some way or another. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. If you don't follow Courtney, follow her on Instagram at Courtney, the OT, anywhere else that people can find you. 
Not really. I mean, I guess TikTok, but honestly, I really don't like the stuff I post on TikTok is also on my Instagram. Yeah, Instagram that's kind of how I am. TikTok is a very, very long afterthought. TikTok is just where I get the ideas and like I go. make the stuff in there. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Courtney. And I will talk to you later. All righty. Thank you. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast, and I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?